The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. If you're a guest with us, it's great to have you today. My name's Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And on behalf of Emmaus and our pastors, welcome. We would love to meet you afterwards at the Connect table in the back corner over here and just get to know you and know your story. And so welcome to um, Emmaus. Covenant members, it's great to see you and to do life with you and great to hear you singing and praising the Lord. And what a wonderful time of worship on Hymn Sunday and uh, uh, the cello. Good night. And, uh, and Sam's leading us. And um, and then just the Lord that we sing about. Praise, praise God. And without it, it's just music. Um, but with it, it's truth for our souls. And so um, what a blessed time um, for us to sing. And we want to continue that time of worship in just a moment of prayer and then into the scriptures. So let's go to the Lord and, and pray. <clears throat> Jesus, my heart is overwhelmed as a pastor, just as a a man, as I look around this room, at those who are singing the words, it is well with my soul. At those who are singing songs about you being our anchor in the midst of doubt. Because in this room, there is a lot of doubt. And there's a lot of fear. And there's a lot of brokenness. In this room are people who are facing children with life-threatening sickness. In this room are people whose marriages are clinging for a last chance of hope. In this room are people whose hearts And minds have been slaughtered by sin this week. And they came in here bleeding, clinging to the only hope that they have. That is you, Christ, our anchor. So may you today, through your spirit, encourage the hearts of your children in this room. May they be assured of your faithfulness. May they be encouraged in your greatness. May they be overwhelmed with your forgiveness. And when they leave here today, may they leave here more in awe of you than they came here. All because of who you are. And Father, we also today pray for churches in our city who this moment are standing and proclaiming the gospel as well. Father, may you do a work in Kansas City with the good news of Jesus that transforms lives and thus transforms our city. Specifically today, Father, would you use Liberty Baptist Church and their pastors and their members to transform parts of our city with the gospel. Would you empower them and encourage them to press forward in faithfulness? 
And then, Father, as we open your word and we look at your scriptures today, would you make them come alive within our hearts? Would it not be a clever word from man, but may it be the convicting, encouraging, exhorting, and rebuking word of the Spirit through the word of Christ in our hearts? We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're in the book of Titus today. We're finishing up our series in Titus next week. So just this week and next left in the book, which just pray next week we have the whole chapter three to cover in one sermon. So bring a lunch with you when you come and and we'll do that next week. We're finishing up Titus three today uh, or next week and the week after that we begin what we call here our resident series And at Emmaus, our residence series is a time that we set aside for some of the men that we've been training to become pastors to get to preach to you, right? This is not a time for Emmaus members to take vacation, right? Though I'm taking vacation one of those weeks, right? This is not a time that just because the residence preaching means, hey, we don't have to go to church right now because it's like a JV guy, right? This is a time for us to come, one, because the word they're teaching is still a powerful word of Christ, Right? And two, because we have some phenomenal sermons that they've already preached for your pastors that they're going to be bringing you. And so I'm excited for our men to get the opportunity to preach to you. And Emmaus, those of you who have been here for a while know this. It's your responsibility to listen to bad sermons. Right? It's part of your responsibility as the church to listen to bad sermons. Because unless men preach bad sermons, they'll never learn to preach good sermons. So it's part of your responsibility for the multiplication of churches to listen to bad sermons. Now, what I'm excited about is I don't think you're going to hear a bad sermon, right? The only bad sermons you've heard are from Ronnie and I here, right? So our residents deliver. They only preach once, but they deliver, right? But, but um, come and, and support them and be here over the next few weeks as they preach for us. And then in June, we're beginning the book of Jonah. And so we're going to journey through Jonah and the fish and Nineveh and God's grace. It's going to be a great journey for us. Today, we're in Titus chapter 2. So what we've been seeing in Titus is this. We've kind of narrowed this book down to this idea is that that Paul is writing to this young pastor named Titus who he's left in this island city called Crete to bring order to the church, this young church plant that they planted, to bring order to it or to bring health to it. Right? It's the same word that orthodontics comes from, to, to straighten the teeth or to straighten this church. Right, to bring order to this church, to make it healthy. And the, the idea here, the three things he says make up a healthy church are right pastors, right doctrine, and right living. Right, That they have right pastors, men who are qualified to be pastors, who are rightly pastoring, shepherding, caring for the church. And we went through the qualification of what those men look like. Right pastors who teach right doctrine, beliefs about God. Right? Doctrine matters. What you believe about God matters greatly. Right pastors matter because they teach right doctrine. Wrong pastors teach wrong doctrine with their life and with their teaching. Right pastors teach right doctrine, and right doctrine leads us to right living. Right? Right doctrine. If you can separate your theology from your practice, you've got a problem. Right? Your theology, what you believe about God, your doctrine, the set of beliefs you have about God should affect your living. It should influence the way that you live. And so he writes this going, listen, to put a church into order, you have to first have right pastors who are teaching right doctrine for right living. 
And last week, Sam lined out for us at the beginning of chapter 2. Pastor Sam walked through the beginning of chapter 2 and lined out for us what some of this right living looked like. It's obviously not all-inclusive, but there are principles and some very specifics. And he lined out for us, what does this look like to live rightly or to live in a godly way, to be godly in your living? And this week, Sam stole some of this sermon last week at the end. He jumped in and he read our text and stole this sermon. And I thought about just giving you the week off this week, but we're going to spend more time on it. The reason he did that is because this week is our fuel, our power for what he talked about. That right living adorns the gospel and it's empowered by the gospel. If you just muster up in your own self-discipline an effort to live better, that's not what this text is talking about. It is not calling us to simply become more moral, to become better people, to not be so stupid in our actions. But it's calling us to do that for a specific reason, out of a specific power. And that's what we will see in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Now, like we've already mentioned, Paul is writing to Titus in this island of Crete with this church to set up what is a healthy church. We've already seen in this passage a little bit of information about who the Cretans were. Right? This is the first church on Crete, and these are people who are known to be liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Right? That's what their own poets write about them, and that's what Paul confirms within his book. He's like, I validate everything your poets say. You are wicked, evil beasts, always lying and full of gluttony, living for your own gain and pleasure. That's who the Cretans were. That was what their lifestyle was known as. They made their living, most of them made their living by being mercenary soldiers. So they would sell themselves to fight wars that they didn't care about, kill people that they didn't love or or have anything against even, and then steal from those people and plunder. That was their living. Gluttony. Evil beasts. Liars. And what's ironic about this culture is that their primary god that they worshipped was the Cretan god called Zeus. Zeus was not born as God or did not always exist as God, but Zeus was born as a man in Crete. You say, well, that doesn't sound so much different than Jesus. He was like born as a man. Number one, Jesus always existed, right? Jesus didn't become God when he was born. He always was God, John 1. But secondly, here's what happens with Zeus. Zeus is born as a human, a normal human, and lives such a civilized life, as they would call it. The Cretans would call it he was civilized, which meant that he lived a life of benevolence towards those who were in need. He lived such a benevolent, grace-filled, giving life to those who were in need that the, the, the Cretans raised him to status of God. And he became God out of man's favor to him because of his benevolence to man. Are you following that? A man proclaimed God. Man proclaimed him God because of his benevolence to them, and so then he becomes God. And this is what their culture holds as supreme value, supposedly. That if you live benevolently, you get to become God. And they had this whole system of beliefs called becoming civilized. 
that if you became civilized, which meant if you become like God, then you live benevolently, and you do that through benevolent living. And so their value, their religious system was, we've got a God who became God by being benevolent and graceful to others. We all should strive to be like that God. And yet what the people are known for is being liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. There is a grand disconnect between what they believe, the doctrine that they hold, and how they live, the doctrine that they practice. Are you following that? And this has also infiltrated the church. Those who become believers are no different. They're holding to a doctrine, but their lives are not living up to that doctrine. They're believing some things about Jesus, but they're not living that with their lives. And so Paul writes to this culture that values benevolent civilization and yet lives nothing like that with no effort for that. And he basically says, Christian, do not say you believe a doctrine, yet you refuse to shape your life around it. Do not say you believe a doctrine, yet refuse to shape your life around that doctrine. And so that's what he's writing into. And let's look at what he says. Verse 11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Right, so so we're just going to break this down as we go. For the grace of God has appeared. What is the grace of God that he's referring to here? When Paul uses this phrase in the New Testament, he most often, in fact, almost always, he's referring to the benevolent act of God on behalf of mankind. The benevolent act of God on behalf of mankind. Again, remember the wording he's using and the culture he's writing into. They value, they worship a God called Zeus who became God out of his benevolence. So Paul's using this wording that the benevolent act of God, the grace of God on behalf of mankind has appeared. It's already appeared. What's he referring to? Those of you who have been in church for a while are like, I know where this is going. Jesus, right? If you didn't know where that's going... Jesus, right? We'll spoil it for you. In fact, let's just look down to verse 13. Skip to 13 and we'll see this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So when Paul says the benevolent kindness of God, the benevolent act of God for the sake of the people, or the grace of God for the sake of the people has appeared, what he's referring to is the person and work of Jesus. Jesus has appeared, and Jesus has worked for the benefit of mankind. The grace of God has appeared. What specifically did Jesus do? Well, he gave the gift that no one else could give. He gave the gift that no one else could give. He said, no one takes my life, I lay it down. No one else could give Jesus' life to mankind, to redeem mankind. Jesus gave his life. He gave the gift no one else could give. He was the giver, or excuse me, he was the gift that no one else could be. No one could substitute for Jesus. Well, he's not giving himself, so let's give Tim. Tim will work. There's nobody as substitute for Jesus. 
He was the giver that no one else could be, and he was the gift that no one else could be. And he gave himself to do a few things. We see here in verse 14. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So he gives himself to redeem you and I from every shameful sin of every corner of our life. Did you hear the songs of the word? It is or the, the words of the song, it is well as we sing them. My sins not in part, but in whole. Did you let that sink in? From all lawlessness. The sins that you are terrified to confess to anybody else. Those things that you keep hiding, the one thing that you won't tell anyone else, Christ gave himself to redeem you, to buy you from the slavery of that sin, from the bondage, from the shame, from the guilt, from the fear, from the trap of that sin. He gave himself to buy you from the things you won't confess to anybody else, even the things you won't even consider confessing to him because it's so wicked and you hope he doesn't see that corner of your life. From all lawlessness. So, so just hear that for a moment, Christian. Follower of Christ, just, just hear that. If you've trusted in Jesus, he has redeemed you, he has purchased you. Through his shed blood on the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, He has redeemed you and purchased you from every dark, shameful corner of your life. There is no sin that holds you that is in power over you if you've trusted Christ. You are free, bought. Your freedom has been purchased by Christ's blood. Nothing entraps you. Nothing holds you. Nothing enslaves you anymore. Don't wallow around like you're defeated and can't overcome it. He bought your freedom. It has no power over you. Do you get that? I see your faces. Some of you are like, there's no way. He has that over. He's done that for me. You don't know my sin, Pastor. I know a lot of your sins. There's none that you've confessed to us that he doesn't have power over. And the scripture says there's none that you've not confessed that he has no power over to set you free from. So do you believe his scripture or do you believe your sin? Is your scripture, is this scripture of Christ telling you the truth or is your sin telling you the truth? He died to redeem us of that, to set us free from the sin. And he died, look what it says, verse 14, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. To purify. You're not only forgiven and bought and set free, but you're cleansed. You're clean. The sin that once enslaved you no longer even stains you. Do you get that? The identity that you once held as a sinner and trapped to said sin is no longer identity. You've been set free, but it's also no longer a stain on your past. It has been purified, cleansed, washed clean. If you want more on that, go back and listen to our series 
um, called Pentateuch, uh, the Pentateuch Grandeur and Grace, and listen to it in Leviticus. He dealt directly with this. So he gave himself, he died on the cross, shed, killed, murdered on the cross, giving of his own life as a sacrifice, buried and rose again to redeem us from all of our sin, to purify us, cleanse us, so there's no even, not even a stain of our sin remaining. And he did this to make a people for what? To give away to someone else? Let me, let me take you, fix you, cleanse you up, put you back on the market and sell you to the highest bidder. He did it for his own possession. He did it for his own possession. He cleansed you and he redeemed you and he forgave you so that he could have you. So hear this, Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, hear this. He wanted you. In the midst of your mess and your sin and your brokenness and your wickedness, when you were When you were a liar, an evil beast, and a glutton, he wanted you. And that hasn't changed. He didn't just want you, and then he got you, and he's like, well, crud, that was a bad deal. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. He knew every sin and secret of your life the day that he gave himself to redeem those. And his want of you has not changed. And never will change, Christian. If you have trusted and hoped in Jesus, he wanted you and he does want you and he will always want you. The rest of the world throws you away. You are still his. You're still his. May that speak hope to you today. If you're not good enough for anybody else, guess what? You weren't good enough for him either. But he still wanted you. And he made you good enough by dying and redeeming you purifying you. This is the grace of God that has appeared. So don't miss that phrase, right? The grace of God has appeared. All right, let's move on. It's a lot there. The grace of God is a lot. And it's free. If you're here and you have never hoped or trusted in that grace of God, I plead with you to do that today. Don't miss that for everything else we're about to say. If you've never been affected by the grace of God, if you've never heard that, if you've never hoped in Jesus, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never said, I have no hope but Jesus, I need Jesus. That's what I need. I need to be redeemed, I need to be cleansed, and I need to be wanted by him because I have no other hope. If you've never done that, I plead with you to do that today, to hope in him. Like, I, I don't know what that looks like. Come talk to us afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about that. So the grace of God has appeared. And it has appeared to do two things. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So it's come, this grace of God has appeared to do two broad things, and then there's some sub-points we're going to dive into. It's appeared to do two broad things. First, to save us, and second, to train us. The grace of God has come to save us and to train us. It has come to bring salvation, the text says here, for all people. So let's just mention that briefly, because what this is not referring to is that all people will be saved. 
Christ's death will not save all people. This is not universalism where everyone at the end of time eventually finds their way to Christ and are saved by him. The scriptures make it very clear the only way salvation comes is through faith in Jesus. That's the only way salvation comes. What the text is telling us is this, that all peoples will be saved. All types of people will be saved. Rich and poor, smart and, and ignorant, wise and foolish, religious and irreligious, moral and immoral. All races, all ethnicities, all types of people will be saved. Which means this, you are not outside of all peoples. Whoever you are, whatever type of person you are, whatever background you come in here from, the grace of God can save you. Do you get that? And it also means that whoever comes into this building on Sunday mornings, or our new building in North KC on Sunday mornings, and whoever you meet on the street, every person you pass, doesn't matter who they are and where they come from and what their life is like, They are not outside of the power of God to save them. The grace of God can save them. So for us who are followers of Christ, who are believers in Christ, may that give us compassion and passion to proclaim, to declare Jesus to people. Because Jesus can save them. It doesn't matter who they are. They're not outside of the power of Christ to save. So tell people, proclaim the gospel to people. He's come so that salvation could come to all types of people. And then it says this, so he's come bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions. So the gospel, right, the grace of Jesus, the grace of God, which is in the person and work of Jesus, displayed for us in his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel that brings grace to those of us who desperately need grace, came to save us and also to train us. This is why as pastors, we don't preach the gospel simply till you're saved, and then we decide to move on to deeper things. There's no deeper thing. The gospel is all that we have. At Emmaus, we'll offer classes to help you be better parents. We'll offer classes to help you parent in a way that's like Jesus-centered. We'll offer ways to help train you. But at the root of all of it is the gospel. The gospel fuels and empowers all of it. The gospel is all that we have. You're like, I have a friend who's struggling, and I don't know how to help them. Gospel. The gospel and every tool and means that we have to help others always should be fueled by and lead back to the gospel. The gospel is what saves and it's also what trains. You're like, how do I be more godly? The gospel. I hear the gospel, I listen to the gospel, I read about the gospel, I talk about the gospel, I believe the gospel, and then I practice the gospel. Over and over and over again. And when I lose fuel, I lose steam, and I don't know how to continue living godly, I go back to the gospel. It's why we do our community groups the way we do here. 
That there are times for you to go, this is an area of my life, I'm not believing the gospel, and I'm not living rightly in this area, I'm not believing rightly in this area, and then the group goes, so let's tell you the gospel. And remind you of the gospel for that specific issue, and for you in general, so that you leave group fueled with the gospel, because the gospel is what trains us, nothing else. The gospel is what we have to train us. So the gospel trains us to do a few things. First, the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So it trains us to renounce, and in a moment we're going to see it trains us to put on. right? But it trains us to renounce and to renounce two things, to renounce ungodliness and to renounce worldly passions. When it says it trains us to renounce ungodliness, first, you think of this at your moment of conversion, or that, that time when you chose, when you, when you heard the gospel, when you put your faith in Christ, and you were like, I, I'm going to renounce all my other beliefs, all my other, my apathy towards God, my, my idolatry of other gods, my, my anger towards God, I'm going to put all of that away. I'm going to renounce that ungodliness, and I'm going to trust and hope in Jesus. Right? It's that moment of conversion when you renounce your former ways of belief and hope, and you put all your hope and belief in Jesus. But this is also an ongoing practice, is it not? We spent 35 weeks in the book of Hebrews telling us this is an ongoing practice. That every day we come back to this perseverance of the gospel, where we hear the gospel in our perseverance of faith. We hear the gospel and we daily put our faith in the gospel. We daily decide not to turn back to the world and to our previous ways of belief and to our previous ways of comfort and our previous security. In New Testament words are like, Daily, take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. Daily, kill your previous ways, your ungodliness, and choose to follow me. So the gospel trains us to renounce all those things. And then the gospel trains us to renounce worldly possessions. Right? These are our urges, our desires, our wants, our reactions and our pursuits and our goals and our aspirations that are built on self-honoring, self-preserving, self-exalting, and self-gaining foundations. Right? Our worldly passions are our urges, desires, wants, reactions, goals, and aspirations that are built on self-honor, self-perseverance, self-exaltation, and self-gaining um, self foundations. Right? So this can be immoral, and it can be moral. It can be moral passions, and it can be immoral passions. It can be immoral things like, like lust and greed and pride that we would look to and go, yeah, those should not be in your life. Renounce those worldly passions. Right? A passion to sleep with someone's wife who is not yours, renounce that. A passion to steal from somebody else, what's, take from them what's not yours, renounce that. But it's also moral passions that you have for the wrong motivations and heart issues. Things that are built out of your self-honor and your self-perseverance and your self-exaltation. These are things like building a platform for personal recognition, obtaining more level of financial security so that you can put your trust in that rather than Christ. This longing and this desire and this goal to be a better parent than any other parent in the room. Goals to be a faithful parent, faithful to Christ and the gospel, 
Not to be the best. That's self-promoting. There's a difference. And it says renounce those worldly, those worldly passions. Which calls us, church, to a heart check in every area of our life. Anything that you hold as a passion, a desire, a goal, should be laid at the altar and checked. What are my motivations for this? Are they worldly, self-preserving, self-exalting, self-honoring? Are they for the glory of Christ? Every corner of our life should be laid down and asked that question to. And then I would just challenge you, church, to lay down those corners of your life and ask those questions to those around you. Because you are really good at deceiving you. The heart is deceitful above all things. So ask someone else, would you look at my life? Do you see any worldly passions here that are guiding the way that I'm, what I'm chasing and what I'm striving for and what I'm looking for? So it's come, the, the gospel, the grace of God has come to save us and has come to train us and has train, come to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions, but it's also come to train us how to live. So these are the things we are to take on, ways that we are to live. And it says to be self-controlled, right? That you put those physical appetites, those worldly passions that you had, that you put those at bay. Speaking to the Cretans who are known to be gluttons, that they would put their gluttony, their desire for self-gain and self-worth and self-pleasure to death. That they would put on self-control. Right? Again, this is not simply, hey, be more disciplined. This is out of the power of the gospel for the adoration of the gospel. Be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. He tells us to live upright, right? This is a conduct that cannot be condemned. In a specific Cretan culture, this idea would have been a culture, a lifestyle of benevolence. It's the only lifestyle they valued as being uncondemnable. If you live benevolently towards others, so perhaps that's what Paul has in mind when he writes this. Right? That you would be people who live upright, that your lifestyles would be ones of benevolence towards others, so as not to be condemnable. But also it's just keeping your life in check so that no one can condemn you for your sins. And then he says it trains us to live godly lives, right? God focused, God pleasing lives. Right, opposite of the ungodliness. So he's kind of coming back in the backside and going, don't do this, do do this. Don't be ungodly, be godly. Right, think about God, talk about God, worship God, center your life around God, live a godly life. And so, so just, just hear this for a moment, church. That the, the grace of God in our lives not only saves us, but it is what trains us to live godly. And so we have to continually go back to his grace and to the gospel so that we can live godly lives. The grace of God and godliness, church, are not antitheses. They're not opposites. Striving for godliness and embracing grace are not against each other. Rather, grace fuels godliness. It fuels your godliness. 
And so the person who lives a truly grace-filled life, you will find godliness, not self-exalting godliness, not look at me, I'm better than the rest of you godliness. That's not godliness. That's a worldly passion that needs to be renounced. But a humble, gentle, meek, God-honoring, God-fearing, God-loving lifestyle. Pointing other people to adorn the gospel and adorn Christ of the gospel. The person you see in that place is a person who understands grace more than the person who lives free in their sins. Are you with me on that? It calls us, it saves us, and then it trains us to godliness. And it does this, it says, in this present age, now. Right now. Godliness, church, is not something that is a future thing. We can't buy the lie that it doesn't matter in our lives today. We can't even buy the lie that it's a process that I'll get to. Eventually, I'll become godly. After all, I'm a new believer. Godliness is a process, but it is a process that should be in process now, today. It takes time to be godly. Because you constantly, it will take the rest of your life to be godly. And when you die, there'll be areas of your life where you're not godly. Constantly reminded of, oh, there's more sin I didn't know was there. There's more brokenness I didn't know was there. There's more doubt I didn't know was there. And renouncing those and clinging to godliness. But it's a process that you have to begin today. Don't wait on it. It matters greatly. And it matters greatly because our godliness adorns the gospel. Or to put it in the words of Emmaus, our godliness displays the gospel. We're a church who exists to declare and display the gospel. It displays the gospel. Now, verse 13 again. Let's just start at 11 and read through it so we... Don't forget it in context. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love the songs that Sam chose for us this week because they were pointing us to the return of Christ. Because what this text just told us, right, is that grace is the means to which godliness comes. But hope and the return to Christ is the motivation to press on. It's our motivation to press on. The hope that we have is that Christ will return. We press on in renouncing sin and we press on in embracing godliness because Christ is coming back. You say, how is that motivation? How, how, how is Christ's return my motivation? I'm glad you asked because I have that in my notes. It is our motivation because of what we've already looked at in verses 13 and 14, and that is this. Because this Jesus who will return is the Jesus who gave himself for you. He's the Jesus who gave himself for you to redeem you from all of your shameful wickedness. He's the Jesus who gave himself to redeem you, but also to make you pure and cleanse you. And he's the Jesus who did all of this because he wanted you. 
and he wants you still. And on the day of his return, he will want you then. He's coming back. He's not just coming back to show up. He's coming back for you, church, because he wants you. You put this in any other scenario of life and you go, there's a person who loves you so much that they gave themselves for you, laid down everything they had in life for you. They washed clean all of your slate of messes and brokenness. They fixed it all. They repaired it all. They gave life to you in every way, shape, and form because they wanted you and they're coming back to see you again. You clear your schedule. Right? You don't schedule something else that weekend. It's open and you're looking to it with anticipation because this person is unlike any other person because I've never experienced this kind of love before. So I am freeing myself to find them and to see them and to receive them. And he goes, this is your hope, church. That the one who gave himself for you to redeem you and to cleanse you because he wanted you is coming back for you. So clear your schedule and look to him with hope. And when it becomes tiring and exhausting and there's doubt and there's fear and you don't know how to go on again, look to the fact that he's coming back. And then run harder. Kill sin more. Embrace his forgiveness and grace further. The greatest hope in the life of the Christian is not that you get to hear a good sermon today that motivates you through another week. It's not that this week you get a promotion that will cover your bills you don't know how to provide for. It's not that your children will be healthy and will have great lives. It's that one day none of this will matter because Christ is coming back. So that one day the one who wants you will come and he will, for once and for all, he will show you his love in a way that is not veiled by sin and brokenness. And you'll see clearly his gracious, glorious desire for you and the extent to which he went to redeem you and purify you. And you will be falling on your knees in praise. That's our hope is that he comes back. So Paul writes to them and goes, listen, the gospel is what saves you and the gospel is what trains you. And Christ returning, the Christ of the gospel returning is what gives us hope and motivation to press forward. So press forward today. Move forward today. Renounce your sin. Cling to godliness so that on that day you'll be found faithful. And when you fail to renounce your sin and you fail to cling to godliness, look to the God who's called you to those things because he's a God full of grace and mercy. And then renounce your sin and cling to godliness. Then it says this. He gave himself, verse 14, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who are zealous for godliness, who are zealous for it, not who are apathetic, not who can give and take. There's a zealousness for it, a zealousness for godliness and for good works to others. And Ephesians says that he prepared you before the foundations of the world for good works. 
here throughout this, everything he's been talking about in godly living is what he would refer to as good works. To the Cretans, virtuous, benevolent lifestyle. For in doing so, you're like your God. You're not God, you're like your God. Displaying the gospel, adorning the gospel. And then he gives this charge to Titus. And I would say to us as the church, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Right? Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Declare what things? Well, all these things we just talked about. We don't have time to preach the sermon again. All of these things. The gospel, a God who redeems, a God who purifies, a God who wants you, a God who's coming back for you, that that same gospel saves and that gospel trains, declare these things. And do so, it says, through exhortation, right? Pleading with, exhorting, teaching what we do every Sunday morning here, what we do through our times of confession, what we do through our songs, what we do in our community groups, exhorting one another to believe this and to hold this and to cherish this, and rebuking. All right, we all love the exhortation part. Give me a pep talk on being godly. Give me a pep talk on the gospel. But also rebuking. Where we don't believe right doctrine, where our right doctrine doesn't lead to right living, that we rebuke. That takes place sometimes on Sunday mornings when we have to correct you as a people. Church, don't continue in this unbelief. Don't continue in this sin. It happens even more so in our community group settings. When as a group, by the way, this should happen in your community group settings. If all that's happening is exhortation, you're missing this. It should be there. When someone goes, this is my sin, we exhort in the gospel, believe the gospel, hope in the gospel, but there's also rebuking. Stop it. Jesus to the woman caught in the act of adultery. Go. Your sins have been forgiven. I don't condemn you. Stop sinning. Right, that there should be this rebuking. You've got to stop, turn from this, get rid of it, renounce it. It's correction. It happens in pastoral counseling. It should happen in friendships. It happens in church discipline when there's unrepentance. Quit sinning. For the adoration of the gospel and the joy of your soul, quit sinning. That we are to exhort and we are to rebuke one another with all authority. With all authority. Specifically to Titus here is the pastor of this church. With all authority. Titus' authority wasn't simply that he was a pastor. His authority is that what he is exhorting and what he is rebuking is the doctrine of God. The authority is in the word of God. Right? Where lives don't add up with the word of God, there's authority to rebuke. And where lives don't add up with the word of God, there's authority to exhort to challenge and to call people to align themselves with scriptures. If you're a guest with us and you're like, whoa, this is, I just walked into like a, a referee camp. That's not our heart and that's not our practice. Ask anyone around. They say, are you a member here? If they say no, ask someone else. And ask that member. It's the practice here, the bunch of referees with whistles calling out all the sins. You're going to find the answer is no. The answer is we love each other and we love Jesus and we strive for each other 
to love Jesus well for our joy and for the adoration of the gospel. And so we graciously and kindly, but with truth, and sometimes with rebuking, lead each other to love Jesus more, to love him more. And then he says, and let no one disregard you. What I love about this is he doesn't actually have the power to make sure no one disregards him. Do you get that? I can't stand up here today and preach this and one of you disregard me and me chase you and tackle you in the parking lot. Be like, quit disregarding me. It's not not the authority it's giving me. I can't stop you from disregarding me. You can't stop another from disregarding. It's an exhortation to Titus, to me, to you as a believer, not to be swayed when you're disregarded, but in grace and in truth to continue with the authority of the scriptures. This is the gospel. This is what saves and this is what trains. Let's renounce sinfulness and let's take on godliness because it matters. It matters. If you're an unbeliever today, again, my challenge to you is that you would trust and hope in Christ today because he's that good. Because he wants you. He gave himself for you to redeem you and to purify you. Trust in him today. If you're a believer, may your heart be encouraged through this truth today. May you be exhorted in his grace to you, encouraged in his grace to you, encouraged in his desire for you and his love of you. May it rebuke you where you need rebuke today where there's sin and worldly possessions and ungodliness that you're harboring, may you feel the rebuke of his word that says stop. And then may we take on godliness through the grace-filled gospel of Christ. And through our lives, may we display and declare the gospel of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for this truth today. And I pray that your spirit would take it to the hearts of your people and to those in this room that you're calling to be your people today, that we would receive it, that we would align ourselves with it. And Jesus, I just simply thank you that today the truth has been reminded to me that you want me. You want us. Those who have been bought by your blood, you want and you desire, and you're coming back for us. May we hope in that today. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.